Well, you can open up to Matthew chapter 19. We're in a series called The Storyteller, and uh, we did this because what Jesus is now, he's much more than this, but Jesus is at least a storyteller, okay? He's much more than that. He's also uh, the substitute for our sins. He's the sacrifice. He's, he's our savior. He's God, but he was a storyteller, and honestly, that's why so many people loved him. Like, he would, grab these, he would gather these incredible crowds, and yeah, he would do some didactic teaching where he would teach, but a third of what he did was tell stories, and, and these stories are called parables. Now, now, you do the same thing. When you're with your college buddies or your high school buddies or, or your friends from the past, what, what you tend to do when three or four of you get together and late at night is you tell stories, right? You tell stories of the past. You tell stories of what you did. Um, <clears throat> you love to tell funny stories. Um, some of you, you love to tell the story of the one time you met that famous person, right? Uh, but it really wasn't her, him or her. It was the lookalike, and it was at the airport really quickly. And you know, uh, but but we love to tell these kind of stories. Now, now a big reason, and you learn this when you're a parent. You learn a lot of things when you're a parent. Um, a lot of times, you tell stories to teach lessons, right? So you tell the story of Hansel and Gretel, not because you're afraid that your kids are going to, you know, see a, a gingerbread house in the woods. You tell that story because you want to warn them of strangers, uh, that that not every person they meet has be- their best intentions in mind. Uh, the reason that you, my, my parents, for some reason, my parents love to tell the story of uh, the boy who cried wolf. Uh, you know, and it's like, well, why do you tell that story? It's like, well, you better tell the truth because if you keep lying one, one night when you, when you need to tell the truth, no one's going to believe you, right? That's the whole idea of that story. Well, Jesus did the same thing. He told lots of different stories to talk about things that otherwise would be very difficult to talk about, like the grace of God and forgiveness and what is faith and all, all of these kind of, the grace of God, all of these difficult topics. And so uh, what we're going to see today is something called the parable of the vineyard workers. And we're going to get to it. It's actually in Matthew chapter 20. But, but, like all of, but like all of the parables, to understand the story, you have to understand the situation Jesus was in. Because he never tells a story in a vacuum or a void. He tells it to a group of people after, usually after several events have taken place. So if you'll open up to Matthew 19, I'm going to walk over uh, Matthew 19 very, very quickly. Now, most people have never heard Matthew 19 preached on. And there's a reason for that. The whole chapter is about divorce and rich people. You're like, that's why I've never heard it talked. Yeah, that's why you've never heard it preached on. Uh, because Matthew 19, the, the first half it's on divorce, and the second half it's on being rich and not going to heaven. You're like, yeah, that's why no one in America ever talks on these passages. We're going to look over them really, really quickly, because the, the whole point you're going to see is the need for the grace of God. And then that, the, the parable will, will, seem, will not seem as dramatic and intense as it should if you don't first understand the setup of it. So let me tell you what happens. In, in chapter 19, this happens all the time. You've seen this. Uh, the religious leaders, and this is always so interesting, so you know, people tend to think of Jesus as a religious guy. Well, actually, the religious people were the toughest on him. So, so these religious leaders came up to him, and, they, and they, this is, I won't read it to you, but in verses 1 through 9, if you, if you look at Matthew 19, um, they come up to Jesus, and they basically go, can we divorce our wife for any reason? And it says they wanted to trick him. Basically, they go, is no fault divorce cool? And Jesus says, no, it's not cool. And then he says this, um, you know, what did Moses say? What man is joined together, let, uh, what God has joined together, let man not, or what, sorry, what God has joined together, yeah, let man not separate. And you've heard that. That's been said at your wedding or whatever. And then here's what I want you to see. We're not going to discuss right now divorce and remarriage, and Christians have debated and dialogued and divided and discussed the different kind of nuances of that, and we're not going to focus on that. What I want you to see here, because this is, I think, what's important, is look at verse 10. Do we talk about marriage in such a way that this is the response that people have? Jesus talks about marriage, and here's the response that, that his disciples have. The disciples said, if such is the case of a man with his wife, it's better not to marry. 
I just want us to think about that for a second. Jesus talked about marriage at such a high level that the commitment was so big that his disciples said, maybe it's better if we don't get married. Like, you know, we're always like, well, people should get married young, and it's exciting. And I'm not against all that, you know, whatever. But, but there's a high commitment here. Now, now why is he going to do that? Well, because for the rest of the chapter, he's going to talk about how you need the grace of God, right? And, and every marriage needs the grace of God, right? And everyone who's married for more than two weeks says, amen, right? It, it, you need the grace of every, in fact, you know this, every relationship, every environment without the grace of God becomes poisonous or becomes toxic, it can be the employer-employee relationship. It, it can be, I've seen this with parents and their kids. If you don't have a gracious relationship where there can be forgiveness and there can be second chances and we can overlook things, then you can begin to resent your own children. There, 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 it needs to be a, a forgiving, gracious relationship. So, so he goes on from there. Then, then look what happens. And this is one of the reasons I believe the Bible. Look what happens in verse 13. So next, he, he's done, they leave. He's done talking about divorce. Um, and it says this. Then children were brought to him that he might lay his hands on them and pray for them. So parents bring their kids to Christ. This should be the desire of every parent, right? Every parent's like, that's what I want. Every good, godly parent says the number one goal of parenting is the salvation of my child. And, and that's, by the way, if you go into our kids' ministry, some of you have never been there, the building next door, we have over 200 kids there on Sundays. If you ever go in there, when you open up the doors and you go into the main lobby, there's four, word, four words on the wall. Meet Jesus, make friends because that's what we want people to do. It's like, well, that's, that's exactly what we want people to do. We want uh, our kids to meet Jesus, but here's what's happening here. This is, this is what's so amazing. Look at verse 13. The children were brought to him that he may lay uh, his hands on them and pray, and it says this, the disciples rebuked the people. This is one of the reasons I believe the Bible, because the disciples are the dumbest people in the book. Like, you're like, they wrote this book from a human perspective, right? Yet at the same time, it says, okay, the, the, yes, there were people that were trying to get their kids to love Jesus, and the disciples were saying, keep them away, right? And we go, who would do that? Well, guess what? As a church, we do this if we don't have a plan for kids, if we don't have a place for kids, if we're not prepared to teach them, if we're not ready to pray over them. And so what Jesus does in verse 14, it says, but Jesus said, let the little, little children come to me and do not hinder them, for such belongs the kingdom of heaven. And he laid his hands on them, and he went away. And see, Jesus teaches throughout that, that, to, that, the, that the nature of faith is childlike, that it means to trust God. It, it's, the nature of faith is to think God is good, God is gracious. So he moves on from divorce and children to this is the big thing. He talks about the rich young ruler. Now, you've heard of the rich young ruler before. Many of us have. And from his title, you can tell three things about him. He's rich. He's young. He's ruler. I mean, like that. But it's interesting because, because this is all going to set up the grace of God. Because it's like this, this person, I believe he really exists, but he's like the ideal person. Because he's rich, he's young, he's a ruler, he's spiritually interested. He's a good person, you're going to find out. We don't know this, but he's also maybe good looking. <laughs> maybe he's from a good family. I'm just saying, this, this guy is like the quintessential guy, right? And sometimes we struggle with, we don't like people who are both young and rich, right? Right? Because normally, here's what most people do, right? Most people trade their youth in for a skill set that will make them wealthy later in life. Like the person who goes to medical school and then residency and then fellowship and they're 35 or whatever when they get out, what do they do? They just traded in their youth. Here's all of my youth for a skill set that will make me money the rest of my life. Well, fair trade. And that's what most people do. That's why we don't like people who are young and wealthy, right? Because <laughs> they, they get both at the same time. 
So this guy's young and wealthy, and he's a great guy, so you can't be mad at him for being wealthy. You know, some people are like, yeah, well, you stole and you cheated. It's like, no, not this guy. And he's spiritually interested. The point is going to be that none of this is going to be enough to get you into the kingdom of heaven. So he comes, he comes to the guy, he comes to Jesus, um, and, and he asks the wrong question, right? Look at verse 16. And it's hard to get the right answer from the wrong question. But he asked the wrong question. And behold, a man came to him saying, teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? See, he's thinking from a religion mindset. We always try to bifurcate between these things here. He's thinking from a religion mindset, which says this. Religion says, um, what do I need to do so that God will love me? That's the religion mindset. What good thing must I do so that I can get to heaven? The, The Christian mindset or the gospel mindset is, what has God done to get to me? And the answer is he sent his only one, his one and only son. So he asked, the, he asked the wrong question, but Jesus goes back and forth with him and says, you know, have you kept this law? Have you kept this law? And then he, he challenges him, go sell everything. And it says the man walks away because he had great wealth. And then look what happens in verse 23. And Jesus said to his disciples, truly I say to you, only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. And then he says this, again, I tell you, it's easier for a camel, which was the largest animal in that, that day, in that place, in Palestine, to go through the eye of a needle, which one of the, was the smallest instrument used in work. So he's like, uh, the biggest thing going through the smallest thing. Then it is for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God, right? And, and we read this and we think, well, good, okay. It must be difficult for rich people to get the kingdom of God. It's like, we all are rich, right? This isn't to guilt us or anything like that. But that's, so if you make, this is like, you know, statistically true. If you make more than $30,000 a year as a family, you would be in the wealthiest 1% in the world, right? So everybody talks about the 1%. That's actually, but we don't ever talk about the world 1%, which we ought to all be in, because if we do that, then we can't play the victim card. So we're, we're in that 1%, but then we never feel like, right? Even like people don't ever want to say they're rich, because if you say, this has been psychologically shown too, if you say you're rich, you feel responsible, Rich people feel responsible. It's like, well, if I'm rich, I've got to do something about being rich. Um, so what we do is rich people think, we think rich people make twice what we make, no matter what you make. And so all this happens, and so what he's saying is everybody's rich, you know, we're seeing this here, and, and it's very difficult, almost impossible, for a rich person to get to heaven. And so we're, this is all setting up the grace of God. So, but look what happens in verse 25. When the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished, So again, third time in a row, the disciples don't understand anything, right? Saying, who then can be saved? And Jesus says in verse 26, but Jesus looked at them and said, with man, this is impossible, but with God, all things are possible. He's pointing to the grace of God. And we're going to get to this in the parable. And then Peter, of course, Peter wants more than that, right? Then Peter says in reply, he always speaks first and for the disciples, see, we've left everything and followed you. What then will we have? Right? He's like the guy who's saying, come on, I also, I took, I got the purity ring when I was in high school. Now what do I get? I went to Christian college. I did the two-year journeyman mission trip, whatever it is. I, I did all of the extra things. I've decided to give regularly and faithfully. I give half a day a week to my church on Sundays. What am I going to get? And Jesus responds, we, we won't go too much into this, but Jesus responds in verse 28 through 29, basically saying, hey, there is reward. There's degrees of reward for degrees of faithfulness. But then I want you to see verse 30. This is really interesting. Verse 30, follow me here. Verse 30 of chapter 9, or 19, so 
Chapter 19, verse 30, and chapter 20, verse 16 are the same phrase that bookend the parable he's going to tell. So he sets up all of these stories and everything, and then it says this, but many who are first will be last and the last first. That shows up at the beginning of this parable. It's going to show up at the very end of this parable. And it speaks to the upside-down nature of the kingdom of God. We know this, right? So the Bible says if you want to be, you know, the poor in spirit will be rich, right? If you want to find your life, you have to lose it. Um, if you want to be free, you need to be a slave to Christ. If, if you want to be the greatest, you need to be the least, right? We hear all those things. We don't often believe all those things, but that's what the Scripture says. And then he tells this parable, and I, and I want to read this parable to you in its entirety. So all 16 verses we'll read together. And here's what I want you to notice in it, that um, it really should not be called the parable of the vineyard workers. Like in your Bible, it's probably it's subtitled. Those subtitles, by the way, aren't inspired. They're, that's what people put in there, you know? I don't think it should be called the parable of the vineyard workers because it's not about them. It's the, it really should be called the parable of the gracious landowner. Because I believe the main person in this story that everything's about is the master and the landowner. <clears throat> Let's look at this. He says, for the kingdom of heaven is like a master. He's the main thing. Focus on him. Don't miss him. For the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. By the way, they would work a 12-hour day, 6 a.m. to 6 p.m. After agreeing with laborers for a denarius a day, he sent them into his vineyard. And going out about the third hour, which would be 9 a.m., he saw others standing idle in the marketplace. And he said to them, you, go into the vineyard too, and whatever is right I will give you. So they went, going out again the sixth hour, which would have been noon, and then ninth hour, which would have been 3 p.m., he did the same. And at about the 11th hour, that's 5 p.m., the work day ended at 6. And about the 11th hour, he went out and he found others standing. And he said to them, why do you stand here idle all day? And they said to him, because no one's hired us. He said to them, you go into the vineyard too. And when evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to the foreman, Call the laborers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last up to the first. And when those hired about the eleventh hour came, each of them received a denarius. <clears throat> now, when those hired first came, they, they thought they would receive more. But each of them also received a denarius. And on receiving it, they grumbled at the master of the house, saying, These last worked only one hour, and you've made them equal to us? who have borne the burden of the day in the scorching heat. <clears throat> but he replied to one of them, friend, I'm doing you no wrong. Do you not agree with me for a denarius? Take what belongs to you and go. I choose to give to this last worker as I give to you. Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Or do you begrudge my generosity? So the last will be first and the first will be last. When you, when you read that, I mean, obviously I've gotten to read it and look at it all day, all week. When you read that, I, I don't know if you feel this the first time, I'm like, what does this mean, right? That, that's how a lot of the parables are, right? We never get an explanation, I've told you that. We don't get an explanation for a lot of the parables. Um, dur- during this parable series, my wife, Margie, she is, you know, she'll ask me on Monday, you know, what am I preaching on this week? And I'll tell her the passage and she'll look at it and talk to her DNA group about it and they'll, they'll look into it. And so this week she was reading this one and, and I came home Monday and I said, what, what do you think? What's your kind of main takeaway from this passage? And she said, it's not fair. <laughs> I 
And I'm like, I actually think that's probably one of the main points. Like, you, you read this passage, and you're like, this would be the worst management practices I've ever seen, right? Pay everybody, by the way, we'll get into this, but pay everybody generously to begin with more than they deserve. Because we'll get into this, but a denarius was way more than you'd pay an unskilled laborer. So why would you be generous to everybody more than you need to be? And then continue to be more and more generous as time goes on. It's like, it's not fair. Here's what I believe the big idea in this parable is. You don't want fair. Right? I mean, like, this is like a, this is a big idea in Christianity. There's something better than fair. It's called grace. And that every day you can get up and you can, you can kind of put two lenses on, right? You can either decide to put on the focus of fairness or the glasses of grace. Okay, that's a little cheesy, but just whatever, you know. You maybe remember it, right? But you can put on the focus of fairness, right? You can put that lens on. And if you do, you, what that normally means is you're going to be looking to your left, you're going to be looking to your right, you're going to be comparing what you have, what you feel like God's given you, compared to what you feel like God's given everybody else. And by the way, that never works because you only have one level of comparison. This happens all the time. People go, well, you know, I wish I was as, you know, in, as in shape as she is. It's like, well, you have no idea what her relationship with her husband's like. You know, have no idea how it's affecting her children. You have no idea how that's working with her work. You have no idea if she has mental illness. You, you, you have no idea any, any, any other category that's going on. A lot of times when a guy goes, I wish I had his life, they just mean I wish I had his money. It's like, well, what's his relationship with his kids like? And does he have any hobbies? And does he have any free time? And is he completely stressed out? It's like we, we, just, we tend to think of one image, one, one, one um, kind of metric that we tend to look at people with. And so, so in fairness, by the way, is, is not something that you really want from a biblical perspective. Like, if, if you never want to pray this prayer to God, God, give me what I deserve. <clears throat> you would want to dive into the, find a basement as soon as you could, you know, and hide, right? Because <clears throat> what we deserve from a biblical standpoint, and this isn't dramatic, from a biblical standpoint, what we deserve is hell and judgment and the wrath of God. So what would be best is to say, okay, based on what I deserve, everything else that I have is grace, everything. And so I need, I need to focus on what I have as the grace of God in my life, and I need to stop looking to the left and looking to the right and trying to, trying to wear the focus of fairness. Instead, I need to have, put on the glasses of grace every day and be very, very thankful for everything that I have. So what I want us to do is I want us to look through this parable verse by verse and see what we can learn about seeing with the lens of grace versus seeing through the lens of fairness. Uh, first, we need to understand the grace of God. The grace of God is the main theme and thrust in this parable. And the grace of God, is, it's like one of those words that every time I say it, you know, and I've been a Christian for like 19 years now, and every time I say the word grace, I, I'm like, and I, I hate to say this, I'm like, yawn. Like, how do, I, how do I make this real in my own heart and life, right? Because it is the most unique thing about Christianity. And, and grace is, it's God's, I mean, I'm just gonna try to talk about it for a few minutes as best I know how. It is God's unmerited and unearned and undeserved favor toward us in spite of who we are and all that we've done against him. It is God reaching down to us as we are running away. That's what, that's what the biblical definition of it is. It's God loving the most unlovely parts about us. That, that's what the grace of God is. And, and here's the point of it. I think the point in this parable is the grace of God should be incredibly shocking. Like you read it, like when you read this parable, if you're really honest, you're probably a little mad. You're like, well, no, you don't, you don't get to work 30 minutes and make a day's wage. You don't get to come in halfway and get what everybody else gets. I mean, that, that is a normal, natural reaction when you read it, and we're supposed to read it like that. We're supposed to read it and go, this is almost, it feels wrong. 
It feels wasteful. It feels excessive. It feels expensive. It feels like not the right thing to do. And that's how it's supposed to feel. See, what the grace of God, the grace of God and the truth of God always come together, by the way. That's why John 1.14 says Jesus Christ was full of grace and truth, right? And so what happens when the grace of God comes, it, it always comes with the truth of God first. It, 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 for the grace of God to come, well, let me say it this way. You couldn't, you couldn't handle truth without grace. And so the, the Bible comes to us, the word of God comes to us, Christ comes to us, and it, it tells us, okay, you have a problem. That's what it says. And and if you're honest, you're like, oh, thank God. I thought I did. <laughs> thank, I've always felt that way. Thank God someone told me this. Because everyone else is like, you're fine. You're okay. Nothing's wrong with you. You're just perfect as you are. Don't worry about it. You're like, I'm not fine. And then the second thing, the grace of God comes to you and goes, actually, you are the problem. And you're like, well, my spouse has been telling me that for years. So, you know, <laughs> and she's the problem too, and he's the problem too. Okay? But it's like, okay, you are the problem. But then it's incredibly helpful saying, look, but the grace of God is God's announcement that he's done everything necessary, everything, right? And that's why it's, it's such a powerful thing. So I want you to see what happens in these verses. Look at me first at verse one. It says, for the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who went out early in the morning to hire laborers. What you see in this parable is the master of the house who represents God. He keeps going out again. It's like he's there at 6 a.m., at 9 a.m., at noon, at 3, at 5, and he's always looking for workers. Here's the first big idea about the grace of God. It pursues us. Every other religion is, hey, would you go try to find God? Would you go try to work your way and find your way to God? And there's different ways. You know, there's, you got to say these prayers. You got to do the five pillars of Islam. You got to do the seven steps of Hinduism. You've got to do something to get your way to God. And, and the grace of God is all about God coming and pursuing us. I mean, think about it. God, God is the great initiator. God initiated in creation, right? None of us asked to be created. God initiates in creating us. God initiates in revealing himself to us in revelation, right? We wouldn't know anything about God if he didn't let us know that about him. Um, he forfeits his personal privacy to let us know things about him. In fact, in the garden with Adam and Eve, the first, so, you know, he creates everything, he blesses everything. The one thing he does different with man and woman is he speaks to us. He has a conversation with us. He tells us what we need to know because we were dependent on his word. And then thirdly, he initiates in salvation, right? So creation, revelation, and salvation. Salvation is uh, Romans 5. While we were still enemies of God, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So God is the great initiator. Secondly, God is incredibly generous. I want you to see um, verse Two, after agreeing with the laborers for a denarius a day, he sent them into the vineyard. So here's the background on, on how this stuff worked. It was harvest season, okay? And they, they had, I think it was about two weeks to get all the grapes. So they got two weeks to get all the grapes off the vines. And so think, think uh, Christmas time with UPS, FedEx, Amazon, okay, DHL. It's like we need a bunch of workers just for a few weeks, just to deliver all the Christmas presents. That's all we need. Same, same kind of idea. It's like, okay, hey guys, uh, we need two weeks of work. We need, we need as many hands as possible. So they'd go out to the marketplace and they would hire unskilled workers. This is, a, this is an important part to understanding this parable. It's like, these guys could do nothing else. These guys did not have a skill set. And guess what happens? I mean, this is real life. Guess what happens when you don't have a skill set? You don't get paid very much. And so these guys didn't have a skill set. So he comes to them and he offers them way more than you pay an unskilled worker. A denarius, it meant, it's a Latin word for 10. It was what, from what I could find, it was um, 
The reason it was called that was it was the amount of money you could buy 10 donkeys with. It was, it was, it was, a, it was a good amount of money, and it was a, what was considered a day wage for a soldier. So if you were educated, if you were respected in the culture, it was basically, it wasn't minimum wage, it was what you would pay a good solid worker for a day. So it was very, very generous. That's why when he tells these guys that they're like, great, 12 hour a day for that, let's go. And, uh, and, and these, these workers, then they go into the, in, into, uh, into the field, into the vineyard. And what you see later is they, they, they're grateful for the grace of God early on, but later they begin to think it wasn't that great, right? They begin to forget how good, good it was. They, forget that, they begin to forget that, wait a second, we were the first ones chosen. We don't, have to, we don't have to be anxious about our jobs anymore. We can begin to do this. But then watch what happens. So he goes from there, and he goes to the next workers, verse 3. And going out about the third hour, that's 9 a.m., he saw others standing idle in the marketplace. And to them he said, you go into the vineyard too. And this is interesting. So for the first workers, the first workers are the only workers he tells them exactly how much he'll pay them. So only the first workers, as you say, a denarius. Everybody else, he says this. Look at this phrase. And whatever is right, I will give you. Here's what this is. All the commentators commented on this. This is the language of you're going to have to trust me. I'm a good God. And, and that a large part of being a Christian is trusting God, right? But, but it's, now, is it hard to trust God when things are going well? No, right? No one's on their wedding day like, I'm just trying to trust the Lord, you know? It's like, I, I got my dream home. I'm just trusting the Lord, you know? We had our first baby. I'm trusting the Lord. It's like, no, what's hard is the opposite of those things. I'm single again, I'm, I'm infertile again, I'm underemployed or unemployed again, I, I'm struggling with illness and injury again, something terrible or tragic happened to me or my family again, right? And, and in a, you guys know this, but in a church of our size, you know, um, I, would, I mean, I think it would be safe to say every week I hear about somebody in our church who something terrible either happened to them or somebody they love. There were two people this week in our church. And, you know, and it's hard. You hear these things, right? This is what happens. Like, you hear the worst news that you, it's the worst day of your life is what it happens in your life. It's like some, something comes in and it's like, here's the worst news that you don't want to hear and I'm going to lay it on you right now. It's a physical thing or it's a medical thing or it's a relational thing or it's a financial thing. And, and then you have to ask the question, is God still good? And the answer is always yes. But basically what you're asking, when, when you're asking, can I trust God? You're asking, is God three things? Is he good? Is he wise? And is he in control? I mean, and, and the answer to that, and, and by the way, trusting God doesn't mean I feel that way all the time, right? But trusting God is, I know, and that, that's, by the way, that's all I can say to people when they're suffering. I don't, have a, I, don't, I don't come with a book. I don't come with a bunch of spiritual language. I, I normally pray for them, and I, I affirm those things about God, and I say, nothing about God's changed. God's in, and, and we don't, we don't, by the way, trusting doesn't mean I have all the answers, right? The book of Job's like, uh, here interesting fact about Job, the book of Job. He never found out what was going on. That's maybe the whole point of the book of Job. God never answers his questions, ever. It's like 42 chapters. Nope, he doesn't figure out why it all happened. It's like there's this element of just trusting in God and walking with it. But, but, but they begin to trust him. Verse 5 says, so they went. What does it mean? What does it mean to trust God? It means that you continue to move forward, even though you don't have all the answers. And so that's what they do. And then verse 6 and about the 11th hour, and by the way, that's nomenclature that we now use, right? We got it from this parable. The 11th hour means like at the last moment. It says this, and about the 11th hour, he went out and he found others standing. And he said to them, why do you stand here idle all day? Verse 7, and I love this element of the grace of God. Here's what they say. They said, because no one else hired us. 
Uh, Translation, nobody else wanted us. We've been overlooked by every other person. And it's the 11th hour, which basically means we're going home with nothing to feed our family with. And I love what he says. He said to them, you go into the vineyard too. It's like, well, you know, did he need them? No, but they needed him. And, and you know, this is what, you know, people see, we, we see this sometimes, and it's very powerful, is we see people come to faith in Christ very late in their life. You know, I, just this week, I, I wasn't looking for this, I saw this article about a, about a man who at the university, I believe it's the University of Alabama Medical Center, um, a, a man there uh, had stage four lung cancer, you can Google this later, not now, please. <laughs> um, but a man, man had stage four lung cancer, and it's a really powerful story. His first name is Thomas, and um, he, he was an atheist his whole life. And he gets lung cancer, and it gets to stage four, and he ends up giving his life to Christ with stage four lung cancer. And we go, well, why did, this, why did it make the newspaper? Why did why I hear about this article? Because he wanted to get baptized. Well, if you have stage four lung cancer, you are completely on oxygen, and so you've got to Google this later, but basically they had to maneuver this and figure this out because they had about seven seconds to baptize him and get him back on oxygen. Which, by the way, is always difficult. If I hear people go, I don't know if I want to get baptized. I'm a little embarrassed to get in front of people. It's like, oh, come on. Read, read a story about a guy figuring out how to get his oxygen tank off and get, get it back on. And so there's this, there's this picture, and, he's, and there's, there's nothing left to this guy. I mean, you look at, he looks, he looks like, if you ever saw what Steve Jobs looked like at the end of his life, that's what this guy looked like. And you see this baptism, and he's smiling in it, and, and, and I read the article, and at the end of the article, it said, you know, Thomas's family, it was a bittersweet day, Thomas was baptized on September 4th, 2019, he died six days later. Well, there you go, that's an 11th hour conversion, and God honors that. And, and this happens, is, is, and here's, here, here's what I think this means. This means, you know, the, what the grace of God does is it, it confronts both religion and rebellion, right? So religion says, I want to earn it. I want to do something. And, and it says, actually, you can't. In fact, you know, Romans chapter 4 says, if you try to work for it, it works against you. It's like, if you owe, if you owe me a trillion dollars and you try to pay me $20, it's insulting, it would be better that you just say, I can't pay anything, than you try to give $20 when you owe a trillion. So it works against you. But then rebellion is powerful. To the, it confronts rebellion because it says, there's no sin that you can commit to put you outside of the grace of God. That's incredibly hopeful. Like, like I don't know this for sure, but, but from what I read, and no one knows their heart, but from what I read, both Ted Bundy and Jeff Dahmer, Jeffrey Dahmer, who are not great guys, okay, we all admit that. Um, you've heard those names before. Right? They're, they're serial killers. Or ra- they're the worst of the, we would all admit this, they're the worst of the worst of the worst. Well, they both said they've given their life, they gave their life to Christ before they died. And they both had significant Christian uh, ministers that were near them that said they thought it was genuine. Now, we don't know, but here's the question. Can God save people like that? Yes. I remember the first time I, I, I used the illustration of Jeffrey Dahmer and that he may have become a Christian at the end of his life, and some guy came up to me after service and goes, I hate Jeffrey Dahmer. It's like, all right, you know? But, but, it, but he did, that really happened. And I just thought, okay, well, that's kind of the point. That's kind of the, that's kind, you're kind of the, the worker that doesn't like that, right? And actually, the dirty secret of, of some Christians is they kind of resent the person who gets to live, not that crazy life, but the, the, to live a, uh, to live maybe a sinful life and give into the pleasures and then maybe come to Christ real late in life. 
Sometimes it's like, well, man, I wish I, it's a sinful, oh, I wish I could do that. And that reveals a lot about our own heart. And so he goes on, and here's what happens in verse, verse 8. It says, and when evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, call the laborers and pay them their wages. And look at this, beginning with the last up to the first. So he did, this is so interesting. So he decides to give to the last first in front of those who came first so that they would see it, right? So if he wanted to, if he wanted to make his grace um, and his giving and his generosity um, secret, he could have just called the first workers, paid them the Daenerys, they would have been happy and they would have left. He's actually doing this to show them how gracious he is. Look at, look at verse 9. And when those hired about the 11th hour came, each of them received the Daenerys. Now, when those who hired first came, they thought they would receive more. But each of them also received a denarius. It's like they were happy with what they had until they saw what others had, right? It's like the story of our lives, right? It's like, you know, I've got three kids. It's like if I come home from a trip and I'm like, all right, I got you a baseball hat. And, you know, he'd be so excited. I'd be like, and I got you a baseball bat and a glove. He's not as excited about his hat anymore, you know? And I got you an iPad, you know? <laughs> I wouldn't do it to look at no, but, but it's like, well, you know, it's like, is there something wrong with that? Well, I, maybe not, right? And actually, am I being gracious to all of them? Yes. But you get what I'm saying. That's what happens, that you begin to compete. And so here's what happens toward the end. This is interesting. Look at verse 11. And on receiving it, they grumble. Now, this is a big theme in Scripture. God's people grumble when they don't understand grace, right? The word grumbling shows up all the time in the book of Exodus. It's like, what's Moses doing? Trying to keep the people from grumbling and keep them moving forward. That's the whole book of Exodus. <laughs> keep them from grumbling and keep them moving forward. That's what God keeps telling them. So on receiving it, they grumbled at the master of the house, verse 12, saying, these last worked only one hour and you have made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the day and the scorching heat. And then this is interesting. He ends with three questions. But he replied to one of them, friend, I'm doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a Daenerys? Take what belongs to you and go. I choose to give to this last worker as I gave to you. So the first thing he says is, didn't I give you what I told you I was going to give you? Like, you know, don't, um, I don't know how else to say it, except God doesn't owe you anything. And, and really, it's again, it's the religious mindset that says, I will work for God and then God will owe me things, right? And sometimes we think this is like, we don't think this until, or we don't know that we're thinking this until we haven't got something that we want, and then we start saying, well, God, didn't I, right? You have that kind of commentary in your mind, like, God, didn't I? I've been faithfully doing these things. It's like, well, the biblical mindset is you should just do those things because you love God and they're the right things to do and not expect something in return for that, right? It's kind of like if you obeyed every traffic law perfectly and the speed limit perfectly for three years, is the government going to send you a check? <laughs> it's like, no, that's what you're supposed to do, Right? That's the whole idea of like obey. It's like, yeah, that's actually just what you're supposed to do. But then he says this, and this is, this is probably what, what kind of offends us the most. Look at verse 15. Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Let me tell you what this means. God is saying this, and I don't know how else to interpret this. Can I not be more gracious to some people than others? Are some people going to have more money? Yes. Are some people going to have better health? Yes. Are some people going to have an easier marriage? Yes. Are some people going to have more kids? Yes. Are some people going to have their dream home? Yes. Are some people going to have great parents? Yes. Are some people going to have a higher influence and IQ? Yes. 
I don't know how else to understand, interpret that. Yes. And, and actually, you're not supposed to worry about that. You're supposed to be incredibly grateful for what God has given you. That, that's the, and actually, what you're supposed to do is you're supposed to love it when God is gracious to anybody. And you're supposed to root for one another. And so this is where he ends. It doesn't really show up really well in the English, but that last question, he says this, or do you begrudge my generosity? Here's what that literally means. He's literally saying, or is your eye evil because I'm good? That's the literal translation of that phrase. It's a phrase that shows up a couple times in Matthew, your eye is evil. In other words, here's what it means. You're looking at the world wrongly, which should be incredibly encouraging. Right? Because if you look at the world, think with me about this for a second. If I look at the world, and it's, the way I'm looking at the world makes me bitter, and makes me angry, and makes me resentful, and makes me revengeful, and makes me depressed, there's two options. Something's wrong with everything I'm looking at, which would be very convenient. <laughs> or something's wrong with me. Something's wrong with the way I'm looking at things, right? And actually, I mean, one of the great things, I remember I was taught a leadership class, and the whole leadership class was on perspective. It's like, well, that's actually a huge thing on leadership. It's like, you need to see the world differently. You're looking at this from the absolute wrong perspective. The right perspective to see one through is, is gratitude and gratefulness. I love when God is generous to anybody. And I, and I don't compare it to other people because I realize what I deserve is hell. What I deserve is the wrath of God. And anything more than that is the grace of God in my life. And so I want to be incredibly grateful. You know, I heard a pastor, he was telling a story. He said he was, he was, uh, he was pastoring an older church. And he said he was going to the hospital. And there was an older Christian man in his, I think, late 80s. He was dying. And he said, I was, ta he said, I was talking to this guy. And um, he said, I was asking him about his life. And he said, um, he was in his older, older 80s. And the guy, the guy uh, said to the pastor, he said, man, I'm so grateful that I got to be married. And the pastor said, well, that was interesting because he didn't get married until his early 40s. And he said, most people, you know, I, I thought maybe he'd be talking about how he wished he got married earlier and how, you know, he was just grateful. And then he said, and I'm really grateful that we were able to have one kid. And he said, that's interesting because most people just, I could see people complaining, I got married later and therefore we couldn't have the kids we want to have. And he said, and then he said, and you know, I'm really grateful for the 13 years I had with my wife before she died of cancer. He said, I was sitting with this guy and married in his 40s with one kid for 13 years before his wife dies and leaves him with, as a single dad because she has cancer. And he said, there's just a whole different way that somebody, that most people would probably look at that situation. But this guy was, at the end of his life, was seeing everything not through the lens of fairness. Right? The lens of fairness is, why do other people get married in their 20s and celebrate their 50th anniversary and have many kids? That's the lens of fairness. He was seeing it through the glasses of grace. I can't believe that I got to experience all that God's given in my life. And, and that's, by the way, why he, why he ends with this phrase. Now, this phrase, no one is for sure what it means, verse 16, because it's, it's a proverb. But it says this, so the last will be first and the first last. It, here's what I believe it means. How can the first be last and the last be first? Well, think about a foot race. In a foot race, if people are running, how can the first per it's like a little riddle. How can the first person be last and the last person be first? Only if everybody finishes at the same time. I think it's a reminder, listen guys, everybody gets to where they are and everybody gets to heaven only one way through the grace of God. 
And actually what you, God, this is interesting. God is not fair, but God is just. And you don't want God to be fair. If God's fair, it's like you get everything that you deserve and that's not good. God being just is taught throughout the scriptures. Basically, God being just means simply this, that every sin will be punished, that there will be no injustice in the world, that everything will be punished either at the cross of Christ or at the lake of fire. And that what God does is, that when, you, when, you, when we read this story, the reason that we get so upset is we think we're the 12-hour worker. <laughs> we think we're the, we've been working, it's like none of us have been the 12-hour worker. None of us have been faithfully working for Christ completely all our life. There's only one 12-hour worker, and his name was Jesus Christ. There's only one person who said, I will go into the field, and I will do it perfectly, and I will take the denarius, and instead of grumbling, he gives it to us. You know, in fact, what's interesting is the grace of God is, and Dietrich Bonhoeffer talked about this, but the grace of God is not cheap. The grace of God is very costly. You know, for God to be as gracious to sinners like us, it cost him the life and the death of his own son. And that's what we celebrate. That's what we sing about and we, we love the grace of God here at Two Cities Church. Let's pray. I want to give us just a moment to respond. Maybe just take one of these two prayers and pray them in your own heart. <clears throat> Maybe you need to just pray something like this. Lord, I need to receive the grace of God in my. And where do you need the grace of God in your life? Some of you, you're like, I need the grace of God. I just need to become a Christian. I don't need to work for it. I need to receive it. I need to realize that the grace is the announcement that God's done everything. For others of us, you need the grace of God in a certain area. You need it with a struggle in your, in your sin life. You need it in your marriage or your parenting. You need it in regards to an illness or injury that you have, a financial or career issue that you have. But then just for, the good, for the good of your own heart, you need to pray this. Lord, thank you for the grace of God in so-and-so's life. And you need to be thankful for the grace of God in your neighbor's life or your friend's life or someone in your community group or your spouse's life. Lord, we want to be a grace people. Lord, we don't want to be thinking about fairness. We want to be thinking about the grace of God and receive it. We ask this in your name. Amen.